From Astoria to the Rockaways, it's time for the Queen's New Yorker. And here is the man giving you all the info, your uber snazzy and jazzy host, Mr. Jason D'Antonio! Thank you so much, and welcome to another edition of the Queen's New Yorker. I am your gracious host and moderator, of course, Jason DeCanio. It is Tuesday, April 6, 2021. First of all, a happy Easter to all of you. It is the Easter season. Hope you spent Easter Sunday really good and didn't eat a lot of candy, but it was a quiet one for you if you celebrated with your friends and family. And today we're going now to part four of the history of the New York Mets on episode number 177. Yeah! Alright! Give it up! Oh, yeah! Whoa! Alright! <laughs> it's a lively crowd for Tuesday, yes. All right. So we're getting real close to the end of this series on the history of the New York Mets. Unfortunately, the Mets lost their their opener yesterday against the Phillies, five to three, which was kind of a sad thing. And they missed a whole series with the Washington Nationals. Hopefully, the Nationals team will get back so they can start playing their series again against whoever they were playing. But Mets got to take a game and win one today for the old uh, team. You know what I mean? So we can get back on the streak here because we have to go back home on Thursday to start our series, our home opener against who we were, whoever we were playing, which I think was the Miami Marlins. Yep. So we're looking at that, but right now we're looking at part four of the history of the New York Mets, which is... Uh, the worst team money could buy. And, of course, all of our information comes from the Wikipedia, the free encyclopedia. Don't forget to also follow us on BitChute. And, of course, we have our sweat the small stuff for today. Okay? So let's go now to 1991 and 1993 on the history of the New York Mets Part 4. During the 1991 season, the Mets were actually in contention for much of the season. Closing to within two and a half games of the front-running Pirates at one point. But in the latter half, however, the bottom completely fell out and Harrelson was fired with a week left to go in the season, replaced by third-base coach Mike Cubbage for the final games. Jeffries was once again a distraction as he released a controversial statement to be read on WFAN radio. When a pitcher is having trouble getting players out, when a hitter is having trouble hitting, or when a player makes an error, I try to support them in whatever way I can. I don't run to the media to belittle them or to draw more attention to their difficult times. I can only hope that one day 
Those teammates who have found it convenient to criticize me will realize that we are all in this together. If only we can concentrate more on the games rather than complaining and bickering and pointing fingers, we would all be better off. Well, this was seen as the end for Jeffries in New York as he would be traded to the Kansas City Royals in the offseason. The season ended on a high note, however, as David Cohn pitched a one-hit shutout against the Phillies at Veterans Stadium, in which he struck out 19 batters, tying the National League regulation game record first set by former Met Tom Seaver. With all the personal problems swirling around the Mets after the 1986 championship, the Mets tried to rebuild using experienced superstars. They picked up Eddie Murray for over $3 million, Bobby Bonilla for over 6 and they also traded McReynolds and Jeffries for one-time World Series hero Brett Saberhagen and his $3 million contract, along with signing veteran free agent pitcher Frank Tanana for $1.5 million. The rebuilding was supported by the slogan, Hardball is Back. The experiment of building a team via free agency quickly flopped as Saberhagen and Coleman were soon injured and spent more time on the disabled list than on the field. And Bonilla exhibited unprofessional professional behavior towards members of the press, once threatening a reporter by saying, I'll show you the Bronx. At the beginning of the 1991 season, Coleman, Gooden, and outfielder Darrell Boston were named in an alleged sexual abuse incident against a woman near the Mets' spring training facility. Charges were later dropped. And meanwhile, pitcher, popular pitcher David Cohn was dealt to the Toronto Blue Jays during the 1992 season for Ryan Thompson and Jeff Kent. And while the move was widely criticized by fans of both teams, the Jays went on to win the 1992 World Series. Their descent, or their descent, was chronicled by the book The Worst Team Money Could Buy, The Collapse of the New York Mets, by Mets beat writers Bob Klapsich and John Harper. The lowest point of the experiment was the 1993 season when the Mets lost 103 games. In April of that year, Coleman accidentally hit Gooden's shoulder with a golf club while practicing his swing. In July, Saberhagen threw a firecracker under a table near reporters. Their young pitcher pro pitching prospect, Anthony Young, started the 93 season at 0-13 and his overall streak of 27 straight losses over two years set a new record. After Young's record-setting loss, Coleman threw a firecracker out of the team bus window and injured three people, resulting in felony charges that effectively ended his Mets career. The Mets placed him on paid administrative leave for the remainder of the season and announced less than a month before the end of the season that he would never play for them again. Only a few days later, Saberhagen was in trouble again, and this time for spraying bleach at three reporters. The meltdown season resulted in the worst record for a Mets team since 1965. And in addition, two of the three remaining links to the 86 team, Howard Johnson and Sid Fernandez, departed after the season via free agency. The following season was filled with some bright spots, but there was still trouble for the franchise and the and for the team's franchise player. Gooden, who had a 3-4 and four record with a 631 ERA in the final year of his contract with the team, 
shocked not only New York sports fans, but baseball fans around the country by testing positive for cocaine and was suspended by Major League Baseball for 60 days. Shortly after he began serving his suspension for the positive drug test, it was announced that he had again tested positive for cocaine and was now being suspended by Major League Baseball for one year, thus ending his Mets career and nearly his life. And the day after receiving the second suspension, Gooden's then-wife Monica found him in his bedroom with a loaded gun to his head. Still, the 1994 season saw some promise for the troubled Mets, as first baseman Rico Bronia and second baseman Jeff Kent became fan favorites with their solid glove work and potential 20-25 to 25 home run power. Bonilla stayed, uh, started to become the player the Mets expected, and a healthy Sabre Hagen along with promising young starter Bobby Jones and John Franco helped the Mets pitching staff along. In the strike-shortened 1994 season, the Mets were in third place behind first place Montreal and Atlanta when the season ended on August 12th. When the strike finally ended in 1995, the Mets finally showed some promise again, finishing in second place, but still six games under 500 behind eventual World Series champion Atlanta. The 1995 season marked the emergence of pitchers Bill Pulsifer, Jason Isringhausen, and Paul Wilson. The trio were dubbed Generation K, a group of talented young hurlers who were destined to bring the Mets into greatness, much like Tom Seaver, Jerry Kuzman, and Nolan Ryan did in the 1960s. However, all three players succumbed to injury, preventing them from reaching their full potential. Of the three of them, only Isringhausen would accomplish much of significance in the majors, but as a reliever, eventually reaching 300 career saves. The Mets' dismal 96 season was highlighted by the play of switch-hitting catcher Todd Hundley, breaking the Major League Baseball single-season record for home runs, hit by a catcher with 41. Center fielder Lance Johnson set single-season franchise records in hits with 227, triples 21, at-bats 682, runs scored 117. Johnson's 21 triples also led the National League, the highest amount by an NL player since 1930. In the offseason, the Mets acquired first baseman John Olerud from the Toronto Blue Jays for pitcher Robert Person. In 97, the Mets finally bounced back with an 88-74 record, missing the playoffs by only four games, and the team improved by 17 wins from 1996. On June 16th, the Mets beat the New York Yankees at Yankee Stadium in the first ever regular season game played between the crosstown rivals 6 to nothing. Mets starter Dave Malicki pitched a complete game shutout to pick up the win. And in 1997, Hunley's great season was derailed by a devastating elbow injury and required Tommy John surgery. Also, during the offs during the season, on April 15th, the Mets hosted ceremonies marking the 50th anniversary of Jackie Robinson's first game with the Brooklyn Dodgers before their game against the Los Angeles Dodgers at Chase Stadium. During the ceremonies, Robinson's jersey number 42 was retired by Major League Baseball, and the Mets won the game 5 to nothing. Now, the Mets season in 1998 began with an unforgettable opening day game at Shea Stadium 
on March 31st against their division rival, Philadelphia Phillies, marking the first time that a regular season baseball game was played in New York in March. Both of them were involved in the longest scoreless opening day game in the National League and the longest one in MLB since 1926 when the Washington Senators beat the Philadelphia Athletics 1-0 in 15 innings. The Mets won the game 1-0 in 14 innings when backup catcher Alberto Castillo delivered a full count, two-out pitch hit single to right with the bases loaded off Philadelphia closer Ricky Botalico. During the season, the Mets acquired Mike Piazza in a blockbuster trade that immediately brought star power and credibility to the Mets that had been lacking in recent years. After the Piazza trade, the Mets played well, but missed the 1998 postseason by only one game. And with five games left in the season, the Mets could not win a single game against both the Montreal Expos at home and the Atlanta Braves on the road. And following the 98 season, the Mets re-signed Mike Piazza to a seven-year, $91 million contract. The Mets traded Todd Hundley to the Los Angeles Dodgers. Trades netted the Mets Roger Cedeno, Armando Benitez, and the Mets signed free agents Robin Ventura, Ricky Henderson, and Bobby Bonilla. Well, in 99, the Mets started the season well, going 17-9. But after an eight-game losing streak, including the last two to the New York Yankees, the Mets fired their entire coaching staff except for manager Bobby Valentine. The Mets, in front of a national audience on Sunday Night Baseball, beat the New York Yankees 7-2 in the turning point of the 1999 season. Both Mike Piazza and Robert Ventura had MVP-type seasons, and Benny Abagliani emerged as an important role player. It was a breakout year for the Mets' second baseman, Algaro Alfonso, and Roger Cedeno, who broke the single-season steals record for the Mets. After the regular season ended, the Mets played a one-game playoff against the Cincinnati Reds. Al Leiter pitched the best game of his Met career as he hurled a two-hit, complete game shutout to advance the Mets to the playoffs. In the NLDS, the Mets defeated the Arizona Diamondbacks three games to one, the series' clinching victory included a walk-off home run by backup catcher Todd Pratt. The Mets would lose, however, in the 1999 National League Championship Series to the Atlanta Braves and six exciting games, which included the famous Grand Slam single by Robin Ventura to win Game 5 for the Mets. The Mets, at one point, were down 3-0 in the series. And we will stop there and pick up on Part 5. Next time, looking at the 2000s on the Subway Series against the New York Yankees. But right now, we bid you a great part four and part five of the history of our great New York Mets. Yes. All right. Wonderful. So with that, I'd like to uh, read some couple of sweats of the small stuff for you. This is from yesterday, Monday, April 5th, to start the week. 
says, our task as humans is to find holiness in what appear to be unholy situations. Rabbi Harold Kushner suggests that when we can learn to do this, we will have learned to nurture our souls. And today's Sweating of the Small Stuff for Tuesday, April 6th, goes like this. If you see each new issue you face as a serious battle that must be won in order to survive, you're probably in for a very rocky journey. The only time you're likely to be happy is when everything is working out just right. And we all know how often that happens. Well, that's about it for today on the Sweating of the Small Stuff and, of course, the Queen's New Yorker. Don't forget, Thursday, we'll look at the Subway Series and the start of the new century for the Mets, the year 2000, and the many years that they had in that in the last course, last years, uh, the last nine years, up to the time that they moved into City Field. We'll look at that as well on episode 178, which will be part five of our great history. We now have on the Anchor platform 2,717 listens. Thank you very much for your continued support. Don't forget to go over to BitChute. Old episodes are being uploaded as we speak, and you can see the first seven episodes with slideshow presentation pictures and uh, relive if you need to start all over again to catch up with us. Thank you very much for joining me here again, ladies and gentlemen. And remember, be honest, be real, and keep it simple, stupid kiss. We'll see you on Thursday for part five of the history of the New York Mets. I'm Jason DeCanio. Bye for now. You have been watching The Queen's New Yorker. This is Jason Kelly on a Jason DeCanio internet presentation. Thank you for your support.